police across the United States are shooting people in the face and head with lead pellet bags, putting them in comas and maiming them, tear gassing indiscriminately, which is particularly bad during COVID, and brutally assaulting people generally with their so-called less lethal weaponry, because the police are being challenged for their ongoing history of lynchings and murder, as well as their habit of protecting the rich and powerful at the expense of the rest. And we were reminded that it's no better in Canada when, on the 6th of June, police in New Brunswick shot and killed Chantelle Moore, an indigenous woman of the Clayquot Nation, during what was supposed to be a wellness check. Donald Trump, meanwhile, is ranting about how a 75-year-old man who was put in critical condition by the Buffalo police was probably acting as part of an Antifa terrorist conspiracy scheme. All of this is important to the environmental movement, not just because the state of our quote-unquote society is bound up with the state of the non-human world, but because a bunch of U.S. states and at least one Canadian province have been moving more and more towards harshly penalizing and limiting public protest, and specifically, in many cases, those against oil and gas infrastructure. Navina Sadashivam explained for Grist on the 4th how U.S. states have for the past five years been trying to criminalize protest. Most of these efforts have not succeeded, some are still on the table, new ones are still being introduced, and more will probably come in the wake of the current uprising. Sadashivam notes, for instance, how 56 bills uh, narrowing protest rights were brought forward in the U.S., in response to various instances of public unrest in 2017 that were sparked by the police killings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the election of Donald Trump. She also notes that 15 states have succeeded in criminalizing civil disobedience since 2015 by passing 23 bills out of a total of 116 that were proposed in various places. These bills were aimed at harshly penalizing protest against oil and gas activity. And now, Alberta is on the verge of banning protests near oil and gas infrastructure like pipelines and mines, even as they're cutting almost all environmental regulation and reporting. Stefan will be discussing this later on in the show, and in a second we're going to talk with Lauren about environmental unity on the left and its young conservative counterpart. But first, since the world is still getting hotter by the day, the Arctic is in the midst of a massive heat wave, Trump has decided to further ruin the Atlantic Ocean, the Paris Agreement is under threat of becoming a talking point with little substance, and all of this has to do with what we think are the meanings of the words we use, I want to look again quickly at the American philosopher Rick Roderick, who I quoted two weeks ago. In one of his lectures on human values, he argued that the scope of acceptable public discourse had, by 1990, been greatly narrowed. But he also argued that, quote, the kind of critical inquiry, the kind that questions a society's fundamental assumptions, if it can be carried out at all, can be carried out when societies are troubled. It can be carried out when the meanings of words, like justice and goodness, become topics for debate and redefinition. 
And that's not just a matter of debate, because the way we describe our lives and understand them is intimately and inextricably connected to the way we live them. Talking about the tendency of American leadership to consist of extremely wealthy white men who serve their own interests, he argued, quote, Real movements for democracy are, oddly enough, most threatening in nominal democracies. If you live by an ideology, the most dangerous ideology to you is your own, because someone may expect you to do what you say. So our own ideologies of democracy, freedom, and equality have been a great danger to our own society. Of a real democratic movement, he said, quote, A movement that serious, a real movement for democracy in the United States, would have to be either associated with dangerous African Americans, or with strange off-the-record ideas that have in some other way been ghettoized. And finally, on the discrepancy between the way we view freedom in everyday life and the way we view freedom in politics, Roderick, who was of course a white man from West Texas, said, quote, When we turn to politics, we forget our freedom. We go, well, you know, there's just nothing I can do. Sartre called that bad faith because in other respects, we act under a practical postulate. So act as though you are free. You might get lucky. You might be free. Who knows? Act that way. It's worth trying. Children sitting in jail. And uh, I'm David Hostetter, and we have Stefan Hostetter and Lauren Latour now. Uh, and we're going to look at um, a couple of articles, both about uh, environmentalism in the United States on the left and the right. So first, we're going to look at an article uh, from Inside Climate News by James Bruggers. Uh, in which he maps out the thinking of a new generation of American conservatives who are concerned about climate change and frustrated with the madness of men like Mitch McConnell. These new Republicans, Bruggers writes, want to tackle climate change uh, while remaining steadfast in their central commitment to market competition and limited government. They seek a radical decarbonization of the U.S. economy, mainly through the uh, quote, unleashing of market forces. Bruggers highlights the American climate contract, subtitled The Right Way Forward on Climate Change, which is supported by conservation groups and gas companies and libertarians, and argues that as the undisputed leader of the free world, the U.S. needs to take a leading role in forging public-private partnerships to innovate on and to innovate on and deploy new technology, improve energy efficiency, build smart grids, use clean energy in transportation, restore wetlands, and plant trees. The document does not mention the Paris Agreement, the 2018 IPCC report, or a carbon tax. Bruggers goes on to highlight an American Conservation Coalition volunteer who believes in this conservative plan, but is also a fan of Greta Thunberg. 
Yeah. So th- this, I think, if you really do see yourself as the the next step of the Republican Party, then then why are you not sort of taking the Tea Party stance of actually trying to you know become a grassroots part of the party to actually change its policies rather than just sort of throwing these ideas at a s- completely unwilling uh, he- you know the the heads of this organization, uh, the Republican Party, which are completely refused to even consider the topic. Yeah, um, reading this piece, super interesting. It was really hard for me to not... I've been called a mean girl in the past, (laughs) and it was really, really hard to not immediately just, like, jump into that kind of, like, dismissive mindset because we have to remember that this organization is maybe not run by, but, like, the spokesperson for all intents and purposes for this article is a young man named Benji Backer, who is a young Republican and has only been swayed by like climate change when it's presented to him on a platter by a young Swedish blonde woman with pigtails. Um, And I feel like there's a lot you could tease out there. We're going to set it aside because I know I can't make fun of people just because they have names like Benji Backer and that's not actually like a legitimate, a legitimate criticism. But anyway, um, the, the, the proposal that this young group of people has put forward um, is totally tempting. And I want to, and I want to say it's positive because it means like there's a little bit of movement from, from the Republicans and from the right wing in general, especially when it comes to young people being active or interested in being active around climate change. And, and part of me wants to see that as a positive, but I'm also, and I know we're going to dig into this really sort of afraid of what that could indicate climate action by Republicans looking like in the future. Um, and sort of like, how, how slippery that slope can be towards some, that uh, throwing the word out there, fascist ideology um, and eco-fascism, which we know is very much a thing and on the rise. But, but basically, I think like the main thing that I sort of wanted to, to say regarding this, this piece and, and this organization is that like, yes, it's really, really tempting to think that um, climate change is just another issue of numbers, that as long as we drive down carbon dioxide, our job is done. And the worst is over. But I, uh, I think we have to sort of, we have to make sure that when we're solving climate change issues and drawing down that carbon dioxide, we're also putting in measures to stop further exploitation of people and non-human animals as well, of course, um, in order to sort of pr- prevent even further environmental disaster happening. Because I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I often think about something like, um, a solution, a free market solution, theoretically, would be just like, cool, letting the auto industry run wild on the expectation that they will shift to electric vehicles when the time is right, and then we'll have millions and millions of electric vehicles, and that problem, that source of CO2 will be solved. I don't think that would actually work, but on the off chance that it did, and then we had millions and millions of electric vehicles on the road, that would end up happening if, if, if we were to not regulate the auto industry, what would then happen is we would have a serious lithium, lithium mining problem, which we already do, but it would, it would be even, it would be exasperated further because you would have all these car companies trying to produce lithium ion batteries for the lowest possible cost, not really giving a, um, a care about, um, about the lives of the people who are producing those batteries and the environments those batteries or the lithium is being extracted from. And then you'd have an, a, a, another huge environmental disaster on a, on a massive scale. It might not necessarily be climate related, but it would still be an environmental and human rights disaster nonetheless. So if we, if, if we 
only sort of solve climate change within the context that it is being proposed by these by these young people. Unfortunately, it doesn't actually solve the systemic issue of exploitation of people and non-human animals. It, it turns it into a numbers game and it means that we'll just have further issues down the road, but also less carbon dioxide in the air. And let's like the part of me that, that, that I'm still stuck on A is that the, this is the Republican Party of Bob Inglis, who was literally primaried out of a job uh, for uh, for the crime of believing that climate change existed. And then and that this proposal can't even begin to articulate the idea of even putting a price on carbon. That is the most conservative solution to climate change that would actually do something, and they can't even propose that. If you can't get that far, you are not proposing anything. It is a complete waste of time. Uh, but but let's like let's move on to the to this uh, this what the left is saying. So uh, we'll compare this with an article uh, by David Roberts in Vox in which Roberts argues that the entire spectrum of progressives in the U.S. is now united in an unprecedented way behind a potent climate crisis strategy that focuses on three main things, namely standards, investment, and justice. This means introducing broad environmental standards for decarbonizing transportation, electricity, and buildings, and massive public investment in green industries, manufacturing, and research, all with a central focus of justice uh, for unions, fossil fuel workers, and frontline communities, meaning all the poors and non-whites who have been forced to swallow most of the pollution and who have the most to lose from the climate crisis. Roberts does not pretend to present a comprehensive analysis of all the green initiatives that could be pursued under this rubric, but highlights major areas of intersecting interests that have been brought together in the left's fight for a livable climate. Thus he writes, quote, Through many different paths, the factions of the left-of-center coalition have aligned around a fairly robust climate policy platform centered on standards, investment, and justice. They have done so through an inclusive process that has helped build trust and capacity across long-standing lines of division. And the issues that remain outstanding are difficult but not intractable, given a little solidarity. Because, he writes, nationwide discussions started happening in 2018 with the inspirational thrust of the Green New Deal with no legislative timeline, groups across the spectrum were able to collaborate in fresh ways. Roberts lists uh, some principles that have guided the strategy, like achieving net zero emissions by 2050, decentralizing carbon pricing, and acknowledging that Republicans are not going to help. On standards, he writes that the broad coalition has convened around a common core of, quote, performance standards and incentives for the biggest three emitting sectors aimed at making rapid, substantial progress on emissions in the next 10 years. The ultimate vision is a carbon-free electricity sector powering an electrified, emission-free vehicle fleet and building stock. He then notes all the trillions of dollars the various Democratic candidates promised for green initiatives and goes on to talk about how unions uh, need to be guaranteed high-quality jobs with family-sustaining wages and safe and healthy working conditions. Fossil fuel workers and communities need to, b need, to need a bill uh, to guarantee retirement, pension, health care benefits, and support and retraining opportunities. Policy will have to be crafted, crafted in collaboration with environmental justice groups, and investment will have to be focused on rural and deindustrialized areas, low-income communities, and communities of color. 
some areas of debate that Roberts highlights, a potential disagreement, are on holding fossil fuel companies accountable, keeping oil in the ground, carbon pricing, nuclear energy, and carbon capture and sequestration. Yeah, um, this is a really great piece. And for anybody who's looking to read it, it's it's a Vox piece, like it was said. Uh, I think the general title is something like policy platform that can unite the left or whatever. It's really great. Um, and, and I think one of the things I appreciated about this um, is that this piece to me laid out exactly why the left has started to talk about climate change within terms of climate justice um, from a strategic standpoint, but also like why it is so important and why it is the most effective way to tackle climate change. So it's like why we should be doing it from a strategic standpoint, why we should be doing it from a moral standpoint, and, and why it's just truly effective. Um, and one of the things it sort of talks about is that it's like and, and again, we're, we're talking in generalized terms about the American context, but these are also lessons that we can very much take into the Canadian context as well uh, for, for any listeners who are here or, or internationally. But it's the idea that Republicans and the right aren't showing up in these spaces the way I think for decades people hoped, people hoped they would. I think for the longest time, there was this sort of this misunderstanding that as long as we gave, gave Republicans information and said, hey, there are conservative ways we can tackle climate change, that they would eventually come on side. And we've come to learn that this is not the case, that climate change is an extremely polarized issue. It's although, although there's maybe some changes happening at the grassroots level, at the party level, it is, it's, it's not becoming, it's not becoming a more approachable issue within, within conservative factions, at least not in a really meaningful, actionable way. So what this means is that the left has, has, has needed to rally around this issue really, really wholeheartedly. And the only way to do that is to broaden the scope of climate to encompass social justice issues, because without having those social justice issues there, there's no hope of getting people on board because like really up until, I don't know, five, 10, I, I, I don't want to sort of misspeak and, and, and erase movements here, but like up until sort of relatively recent history, the best that climate policy could offer people is like, hey, the future is going to suck. But if we implement these measures and we implement this carbon price, it'll suck less and suck in a slightly different way. And that's just not something that people are going to rally around. And it's not something that people are going to get jazzed about. It's certainly not anything people are going to mobilize around. And sort of what we realize is that because the conservatives and the Republicans aren't coming to the table, the only way we're going to be able to pass meaningful climate policy is if you have a groundswell of movement organizing and grassroots backing behind it um, enough such that you can really, really shift the the general discourse, get everyday people involved and get everyday people voting for it. So you have to give us something meaningful and uplifting to look towards. Um, and that has been laid out in the Green New Deal, that's been laid out in a number of different initiatives that are highlighted within this within this report by David Roberts, and, it, and it's highlighted within the report itself. So I think, yeah, I just really appreciate it because I, I don't know the last time I read such a sort of like plain text, easy to understand uh, sort of um, summary or, or synthesis of, of the direction the climate movement is going in and why it's going in that direction and why it's important for it to continue going in that direction. And I think that's what I really appreciated about this piece. Yeah, for sure. And I think the, A, I will just take another quick second to say that this remains the largest self-own of conservatism uh, of the last, I don't know how long. Like you, they had the moment to to accept a price on carbon, and they punted it. And it, what it has become is a much more popular, dramatically more left wing response. Uh, you know, like in the piece, it's described as an industrialized and manufacturing 
bill. That's the that's the way this piece sort of most prominently puts itself forward. It's not putting itself forward as a as a let's use markets to solve climate change. It's a let's deeply invest in communities, support and strengthen unions, make sure that frontline community frontline communities and also those who will lose their jobs due to fossil fuels being uh, you know those who are current fossil fuel workers and helping them as well. You know all of these things. It's a, it's a it's a completely different kind of uh, of of climate bill. You know, in the piece itself, it sort of mentions that the Green New Deal changed the conversation about the type of bill that would be a climate bill, and and this and this is sort of an example of that. Yeah, yeah, you could have had cap and trade, and now you're getting socialism, baby. Like, <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's interesting the whole piece about. And it's funny, both sides have sort of given up on a price on carbon. Like even even the right now is like, eh, it's, let's do private public partnerships because that makes sense. Um, but there is, but it's it is it is interesting the level of which this really does focus on on investment uh, and and on on investing in communities and in infrastructure, especially. You know, the the a a a fascinating piece of this of this whole conversation has been how much. American infrastructure has been falling apart over the past 20, 30, 40 years. And that's been a consistent conversation you hear. It comes it comes back and everyone's like, oh, yeah, everyone, America's infrastructure is really dying. And they sort of move on again. Um, but th- this is a bill that sort of is like taking that moment is like, yes, we will. We are going to invest in infrastructure in a significant way. And all of these ways it can benefit, uh, you know, ourselves and, and the planet, but also the individuals who are most harmed. And, and it's a it's a fascinatingly transformative vision uh, that is that, that is that is being put forward here, which, you know, like for a Senate that couldn't pass a cap a, a cap and trade bill, I'm like crossing my fingers that they're willing to like do whatever they can to get this thing passed. But it is at least it at least it's a, it's a goal worth aspiring to. I guess is what I'd say. Yeah. Well. Well. And and again, like I actually think potentially it seems like we're on a path for it for it actually to be passed and for it to be passed a little more enthusiastically than a cap and trade bill was because again a cap and trade or not a cap and trade but like a price on carbon a cap and trade bill is boring economic policy it's not something that anybody's going to see themselves in it's not something that that's going to get people stoked about the future whereas something like this where it is so focused on investment it is so focused on affluence and how we can build communities and build a future that that doesn't just work for you but works well for you um, you're gonna you're gonna have more support from that from your constituents. You're gonna have people calling you up and fighting for it and saying, "Hey, I want this bill to pass." Um, and you're gonna have fewer people angry when it does pass because you're not gonna have people terrified that they're gonna lose money and lose their homes over it. It's like, no, uh, we finally internalized the idea, and now we're developing policy in line with the idea that climate action doesn't mean austerity. Climate action doesn't mean you have to live in a cabin in the backwoods and throw out your cell phone. It means that that your your life is going to look different for sure. Life is going to be different, but hopefully better different. Yeah. And I, I, it will be interesting to see if we're able to watch a culture shift that can match this, you know, like, like if we'll be able to see, you know, because th- this is a huge, this is a huge investment spending bill. So like, so for the time period when they're spending and spending and spending, there'll be this, there'll be this moment of, 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 re- of regrowth and of expansion and, and everything like that. But to be able to then s- the switch into a mode where 
these people who are now have all this money are not then just using that money to buy so much stuff to then further the crisis is going to be a very important sort of next step you know like how do we ensure that these that all of this money is being influent that being injected into the into the economy which is what this bill will largely do will not straight up just be more buy stuff and it's gonna be tough given the the scenario but i think that's the sort of the next step here is how do we as a climate movement take the energy of getting this actual we'll now have the infrastructure necessary to to live a low carbon lifestyle but how do we make that and take that next step i think is the big question i'm left with yeah yeah and and how to make sure that like it's this big massive behemoth shift that needs to happen and it's and it's initiated by government and it's led by government and it's led by federal investment but how do you make sure that like in in addition to that to those sort of like individual and personal changes that do need to happen to make sure we're not just buying more stuff but like how do you if if the government's getting that ball rolling how do we make sure that that momentum keeps up because i know sort of within the context of something like the green new deal we often talk about obviously the new deal. And we talk about a world war two style mobilization. And I think what we need to remember that in a world war two style mobilization, yes, it was government led. It was government providing financial incentives for businesses to get on board. It was, it was government hiring, but there was also a large degree of, of buy-in from the average everyday person and, and companies who maybe didn't receive those government incentives, but did have the cultural impetus to also throw their weight behind that war effort. So how do we make sure that beyond the government subsidies, beyond the government programs, we have everyday people, small businesses that aren't necessarily connected to that big infrastructure throwing their hat in the ring as well. Yeah, yeah. My, my one hope is victory gardens. That's my that's the one hope. I just want uh, more community gardening has got to be a part of this. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like that, that's one thing that people are stoked for. I've, yeah. I've heard so much about people getting their, their green victory gardens up and going during COVID because like you're at home, what the hell else are you going to do? Welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, run by the impeccable Ken Stower. And uh, we are also perhaps being listened to on a radio syndicate partner, Much Loved, or on the Green Majority podcast. And I am David Hostetter, and we are, Stefan Hostetter and I, are now going to look at our contributor, Christopher Moray's piece on anti-racism and environmentalism. All right, so our contributor Christopher Moray writes for us that um, watching the brutal violence inflicted on people simply exercising their rights this past week, many have been impelled to proclaim their solidarity with and support for protesters in Minnesota and across U.S. and Canada. Many uh, people are starting to ask what they can do to help dismantle the nightmarish structures of oppression which so many are born into. These machines that are so obvious but whose levers of power seem always just out of reach. Chris offers two suggestions uh, for environmental justice organizations in Canada and the U.S. toward the struggle of uh, toward supporting the struggle of black communities against systemic racism and police violence. 
First, he writes, despite the fact that most environmental organizations today push a broadly inclusive anti-racist and anti-imperialist agenda, these organizations generally have white management and directorship. Not just the large NGOs, like Ceres, the Natural Conservancy, Sierra Club, the Environmental Defense Fund, and the World Wildlife Fund, but also the likes of the David Suzuki Foundation, Greenpeace Canada, Ecology Action Center, 350.org, the Canadian Network for Environmental Education and Communication, and so on, all lack diversity at the executive level. Chris argues that this shows that these organizations are not completely sincere in their stance for social justice and racial solidarity, and having a more diverse leadership would easily and clearly put more power behind their claims of building a global movement. As Dr. Robert Bullard, an activist, scholar, and one of the fathers of the environmental justice movement, said back in 1996, quote, We've made a lot of progress since 1990, when a letter was written to large environmental groups, charging them with environmental racism, elitism, looking at their staff, looking at their boards, and saying that we need to talk. And there's been some talking and sharing and working together along the way. We've made progress, but there's still a lot of progress that needs to be made because to a large extent the environmental movement, the more conservation preservation movement, really reflects the larger society, and society is racist. And so we can't expect a lot of our organizations not to somehow be affected by that. And Chris goes on, while the focus on social and racial inequality and its importance to the climate justice movement has certainly improved in the last 20 years, environmental activists should demand representation for the BIPOC community within their own organizations. And the second reflection he offers has to do with an aspect of the protest that's often only addressed implicitly, which is that the right to protest is itself the foundation of democratic politics, and that that right is not in fact guaranteed by the state, but must be continually asserted against the state. Thus, the current life-and-death struggle of protesters today, and of the black American community for the entirety of its existence, against the violence of the state, has profound implications for democratic politics writ large, including any and all democratic movements for climate justice. French political theorist Miguel Abansour argues that true democracy should not be confused with the democratic state, which, quote, in its name presents an avoidance of the original conflict between the body of the people and the body of the state, the first having a political logic of non-domination, and the second a police logic of the hierarchical distribution of ranks. For Abansour, democracy can only exist inasmuch as it rises against the state, a general insurrection against general domination. Central to this notion of democracy is the institution of the right to insurrection, which preserves the possibility of democratic action. While nominally protected by the rights to freedom of assembly, freedom of expression, and the right to a fair trial, this right to insurrection is obviously not guaranteed by the state at all. In fact, state violence constantly supersedes all notional legal rights, often ironically in the name of the rule of law, as the recent violent removal of rail blockades across Canada so clearly revealed. And as Trudeau's infamous hesitation in condemning mass state-sanctioned violence against its domestic population further implies, true democratic expression is virtually always accompanied by state suppression. 
Chris argues that democracy itself is therefore at odds with the state. Returning to Minneapolis, the protesters are not just rising up against police brutality. They're risking their lives to participate in democratic action that opens up space for everyone who believes in the principle of non-domination. Their sacrifice should not only be supported as a rational expression against the gravest and most long-standing injustices, but also for the monumental courage it takes to rise up against a powerful, well-resourced, and ruthless system of oppression. All movements for justice benefit immensely from that strength. So I have a little piece here uh, about the point of the just recovery and why it's so important that just recovery is tackling climate change at the heart of it, which is the the sort of broad nature of the response that needs to, that we need for, for for climate justice. Because as I've spoken with different groups about the just recovery, two criticisms have been leveled, or at least two from folks I would normally consider allies. The first from more centrist types is that it's too broad, that it's asking for everything, and that it should focus more on policy. And, and the second is from environmentalists, is, is that none of the principal headlines speak directly to climate change. The words climate emergency show up in the expanded text of the first principle, but overwhelmingly the first thing from, thing from an outside environmentalist will mention when they see the principles is asking where the words climate change are, are in them. Personally, I disagree with both of these arguments, and, and to explain why, I want to extend on the conversation that Dave began last week in regards to the incredible work that's being done by black organizers and protesters across the world in the past few weeks fighting for black lives, and for justice for Regis Korczynski Paquette, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and the innumerable others who have lost their lives to the hands of police. The overwhelming call of this movement has been to defund police. And I'm not going to get into the specifics here as to what that means, as I am no expert. However, if you want to learn more, I encourage you to check out the Sandy and Nora podcast episode 103 titled Abolish the Police. Instead, I want to focus on how and why defunding the police is, a cli is climate policy and why the expansion of our imaginations and understanding as to what is required for fulsome climate action is necessary for real change to occur. And this argument... I'm about to present rests on two premises. The first is that policing criminalizes poverty and abdicates the rich. And the second is that the denial of climate change requires the police state. And therefore, policing is both protecting the architecture that is currently preventing change and a necessary part of the world where action is not taken. And so this first one, that policing criminalizes poverty and abdicates the rich, comes in a variety of ways from allowing police to sign fines of hundreds or thousands of dollars to panhandlers, to the requirements for those arrested to pay cash bail, to the over-policing of poor neighborhoods, each of these in their own way manufactures criminality. The, this occurs by loading those already without money with more debt, or by requiring them to have money to be able to continue working while awaiting trial, or by instilling individuals with a dreaded tag of known to police, thereby drastically increasing the chances that they will be targeted in the future. And, and, and these are just three of countless examples, all of which are significantly exacerbated by white supremacy and racism. And the data shows this. 70% of those who enter Canadian prisons have not completed high school. 
a similar number have unstable job histories, and four out of five have substance abuse problems. Four out of five are struggling with addiction, and yet our answer is to lock them up. These statistics are once again compounded and exacerbated by racism, so much so that the Supreme Court of Canada earlier this year stated that the Correctional Services Canada had failed to meet its obligation to Indigenous inmates, a statement corroborated by the fact that despite only making up 5% of the population, Indigenous peoples account for 27% of the federal prison population, a fact noted as appalling by Josh Patterson, a of the BC Civil Liberties Association, who noted the disproportionate number of checks on Indigenous peoples in cities like Vancouver as a part of the reason. And if you want more on that, I recommend the work done by Desmond Cole on carding or Amnesty International's article posted early this year, citing the main five reasons why Canada should put an end to carding. And now, contrast that with the likes of Gianni Gameshi, who was able to buy his freedom with an expensive lawyer, or how basically everyone who was involved in selling bread to Canadians colluded to raise the price of bread for more than 14 years, a move that disproportionately impacts the poor, and the closest to justice that anyone has received, so, has received is a $25 gift certificate from Loblaws, a company that made $1.13 billion in 2019. We are a country where you are more likely to lose your housing for stealing bread than for stealing from the whole country. And we are collectively deciding that we'd rather keep it that way than require these companies to pay enough taxes so that no one goes hungry. Criminalization is a choice and we are making it every day. And it's not a cheap choice either. Across Canada in 2018, police budgets rose to over $15 billion dollars which is more than double what the federal, provincial, and municipal governments combined put into public transit. And yet our answer, there at least here in Toronto, is to invest in additional policing to further criminalize the poor who cannot afford fare with increased fare inspectors. Not to mention the fact that once the state decides to lock someone up, it costs $85,000 per prisoner per year in the provincial systems and an astounding $130,000 per year for a federal prisoner to keep these people locked up. So when someone tells you there isn't money to provide housing for people, our question should be, then how can we afford to keep them in prison? The criminalization of the poor keeps us from looking at all the ways we're being stolen from in front of our eyes. Whether it's ludicrous interest rates from credit cards or payday loans, or any of the thousands of ways our system is designed to keep those without in desperate need of employment. Employment which can can then abuse them further, as the other option is destitution, and again, as we criminalize the poor, destitution leads to prison. This entire system protects those who run it, and those who run it are destroying not just the lives of these individuals, but the planet as well. They profit off the industrial food system, the fast fashion industry, fossil fuels, you name it. And concerningly, they are increasingly consolidating ownership into fewer and fewer companies. To go back to the bread, one of the reasons the Financial Times determined that there wouldn't be significant economic fallout is summed up by this quote by Thomas Ross, a professor of regulation and competition policy in the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business. Quote, The companies involved in this case control most of the market, so it's not clear where people could shift their purchase. So basically, 
Everyone is gouging us, so we don't have an option. Barring making it ourselves, of course, so shout out to all you COVID bakers. But that's part one. Policing is expensive and protects capital. If you don't believe me, ask yourself why policing for business, aka regulation, is red tape that is defunded and cut at every turn, while policing for individuals is, quote, essential and sees its budgets go up even during a recession. The Toronto police budget increased by a rate of 4% each year, above 4% each year, actually, during the 2008 recession, and a few weeks ago, when the city announced its response to COVID, the suggested cuts included $575 million from TTC, $101 million from shelter services, and just $31 million from police, a 2.5% cut, despite it being the most expensive budget line by far. So that brings me to point two. The denial of climate change requires the police state. It's undeniable the role the police play in the protection of capital through the disruptions of protests. You know, we only have to look a few months ago to see the RCMP enforcing these injunctions against the Wet'suwet'en and those supporting them across Canada to see this. As David mentioned in the introduction, we are seeing a criminalization of protests that is spreading rapidly, most recently finding itself in the Alberta legislature with Bill 1. Bill 1, also called the Critical Defense Act, would ban ban protests in and around, quote, critical infrastructure, the definition of which is incredibly broad, including pipelines, oil sand sites, mining sites, as well as utilities, railways, highways, and streets. Yes, streets. This means that almost any protest could be considered because you can't even block streets. The bill certainly being pushed as a response to the rail blockades in Solidarity Wet'suwet'en, is an unbelievable overreach of power, which would basically criminalize all protests that the government does not like. First-time offenders would receive $10,000 in fines, six months jail time, or both. This from the same government whose energy minister less than three weeks ago stated, quote, now is a great time to build a pipeline because you can't have protests of more than 15 people. This is a prime example of the government using the power of police and law enforcement to criminalize dissent, and there's simply no other way of seeing this. And we can expect, as climate change worsens, we will begin to see more ways in which governments use policing and criminalization to protect themselves from the impacts of their climate denial. We can already see it happening with the American government's ramping up of immigration bans and the abhorrent actions of ICE while vilifying climate refugees while our own government continues to deport anyone fleeing the states as we've deemed it, quote, safe. We're also seeing governments across the globe identify environmentalists as threats to the state, including the RCMP and CSIS spying on environmentalists here in Canada. And the only way capital will be able to protect itself from the waves of unrest caused by those left out of their private, gated, sea-walled communities will be the police. The road-paved ecofascism requires two things, the lack of climate action and militarized police force. So far, we have both. And we see it creeping already. We've covered on the show previously the use of Californian inmates making cents on the dollar to fight the ever-increasing forest fires and then denied the ability to be hired once they are out due to the record. But it doesn't stop there. In 2014, Idaho passed a, passed a law allowing farmers to hire prisoners to pick, up their, to, to pick their crops to make up for the shortage of migrant labor, which was a direct result of anti-immigration legislation in, passed in neighboring states like Arizona. 
In 2017, a Louisiana sheriff went on a rant against a bill that was going to allow nonviolent offenders out early because he needed cheap labor. For-profit prisons in the United States have has seen an increase in their population of 442% between 2000 and 2016. These prisons can pay their inmates cents per hour for their labor, thereby profiting off both the government paying for them to be held and for the goods that they produce. If we begin to see more borders closed due to climate, the writing is already on the wall for the next source of cheap labor businesses will look to exploit. They already are. The the virus that is white supremacy is baked into all of this, masking its horrors as it convinces the white establishment that they are the ones that are being protected. Capitalism and white supremacy work in tandem, and as you dive into the history, you learn the many ways that the state has acted to undercut black and indigenous wealth while criminalizing poverty, thereby sending incredibly disproportionate numbers of non-white people into a prison system that will now profit off their labor and spit them back into a world with worse job prospects and a target on their back. All while ensuring that they can steal millions from you in the form of increasing use of tax havens to colluding to the, on the price of bread or lying about the knowledge of climate change so you can profit off selling oil for 40 years. There is a, a Frank Wilhoit quote that states, quote, Conservatism consists of exactly one proposition. To wit, there must be in-groups whom the law protects but does not bind, along with out-groups whom the law binds but does not protect. I think, you sh- I think you could extend this position beyond conservatism and to whomever wishes to maintain the current world order. And there is no institution more devoted to, do- to doing so as the police and those who work to protect them from accountability. This is why the just recovery must be people-centered and broad-based. Because the other option, regardless as to how successful we may be in reducing emissions from energy or transportation, etc., is unacceptable if that's a continuation of the racist history that has brought us to where we stand today. Climate action without justice is simply debating the acceptable level of ecofascism that we are comfortable with. And therefore, we must stand up. We must take action. Because quite simply, we cannot afford to be comfortable. (laughs) 